Today is Pentecost, which means 50 days ago, we had the resurrection. 10 days ago, we had the ascension. And this is when we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is something that we should never take lightly or neglect. Because Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, one of the final things he said to them before he ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he said, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, but don't go anywhere until you have my Holy Spirit. Jesus himself did no ministry until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's difficult to overemphasize this. He, the Spirit, is what makes the church the church. Romans 8, 9 says that if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not have Christ. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We become a temple, Paul says, of the Spirit. And this is what we're going to talk about today, but... I want to focus on a very specific matter related to Pentecost and to the Holy Spirit, and that is the gift of tongues. And some of y'all just groaned in your spirit, to use a biblical term, which is interesting to me, because if you read the book of Acts, chapter 2 especially, it features very prominently, there's a ton of New Testament teaching on it, but it's become this very controversial point in the church today. And I'm not going to save the spoiler for you. If you've been here for a while, you know. Calvary Chapel, as an association, holds to the full continuation of the spiritual gifts, including the gift of tongues. We are not what's called cessationists, which believes the gifts have ceased. But I have a, I have a concern for our church. Let's put it this way. Not us as, as this fellowship, but for the church in this day and age, the capital C church, which is we tend to regard the gift of tongues, not biblically, but culturally. Whatever the church culture you grew up with, that is how you understand the gift of, of the Spirit in general and the gift of tongues in particular, which is not how we're supposed to do things. Whether you're pro or con on that, we're supposed to regard things biblically. And if we don't do that, we can lead to an imbalanced emphasis in God's church one way or another. And we're going to look at both of those today. If you want to look at Calvary Chapel as a whole, our error that we might slip into is what I'd say minimization where we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, we believe in the gifts of tongues, but we're afraid that if we talk about it too much, maybe folks might leave the church, or we're still a little freaked out by it, so we don't want to talk about it. So we're like, yeah, it's on the doctrinal statement, but, you know, there it is. And I never want to put God in a box. Isn't that the classic statement we say? But today we're going to look at what the Bible says. And I hope every one of you will be a Berean on this one. You will go home and test the scriptures. Don't go home and... and Find that book that you know it just blasted everything I said. Open up the Bible and look at what the Bible has to say. Because if Christ has determined this to be good for his church, then we have no right to disregard it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14, 39 explicitly tells us, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So we're going to begin by what you might consider a very boring process, but it's an important one. We are going to look at what the biblical data is regarding the gift of tongues. We're going to start in the Old Testament. And the gift of tongues as such does not appear there. There are a lot of things that are not explicitly talked about in the Old Testament. But there are some interesting notes that we can look at. First of which is the Tower of Babel. When God confused the languages of men who were building this tower. You remember the story. They all spoke one language. But in Genesis 11:9 it says its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So Babel was almost an anti-Pentecost. Or rather than people speaking in new tongues in a positive way, they were diversified. They were dispersed. It was a tragedy because they were not obeying what God had told them to do and they were combining their efforts in wickedness. And so God says, well, I'm going to help this process along. And there's a very interesting body of research on what's called proto-languages, from which all the ones we have today spring. And I think that that is a great apologetics point for believing in that. And we'll come back to this. So that's not exactly a gift of tongues, but it's related. Another instance 
comes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. This verse is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians as related to the gift of tongues. In this passage, Isaiah is wondering about the nation of Israel, the nation of Ephraim, as he refers to them there. And he uses this analogy of a drunken person. He says, y'all are so drunk on your own pride and your own sin. How is anybody going to listen to what I have to say? How am I supposed to get through to you? And in verse 11, he says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. That's a, that's a frightening prediction because the point is, you know what's going to wake you up when you have an army invading and you hear a language that is not Hebrew being spoken in your streets because you're an occupied nation now. And this is quoted in 1 Corinthians 14 as Paul's way of saying this gift of tongues is similar to that because it is a sign to the unbelievers that God is at work and in fact judgment and redemption have both come in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate passage is the one that we read this morning, which comes from Joel chapter 2, which is the prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verses 28 and 29, he writes, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So before the outpouring of the Spirit had been reserved for men like Moses, men like David, men like Elijah, but Joel is saying one day God is going to do this for all his people, and it's not going to be regarding age. It's not going to be old men or young men. It's not going to be regarding sex or gender, male and female. And it's not going to be regarding class. Even the servants will experience this. Now that passage does not specifically refer to the gift of tongues, but when Peter gets there in Acts chapter 2, he says the gift of tongues is the sign that Joel chapter 2 has begun to be fulfilled. So the Old Testament, as it often does, it moves in hints and shadows and prophecy. But in the New Testament, we see it with full light. God reveals what he was hinting at fully. So let's get into the New Testament here. And the first New Testament reference to the gift of tongues comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Mark chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus said, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. And the list goes on. Now, you might have that passage in brackets in your Bible. It is a disputed passage textually. Not going to get into it this morning. I certainly accept this passage. I have good reasons for that. And I think also you see it in the book of Acts. So everything Jesus said there absolutely came true. And the book of Acts is where we see the gift of tongues burst on the scene in a special way. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And this, this is such a cool story. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What, what, a, what a cool meeting. There are a lot of cool meetings in the book of Acts. There's another one where an earthquake shook the building and they were all filled with the Spirit again. But this was the, the first church meeting as the church when the Spirit filled them as Jesus had promised. And it follows with this long list of nations from all over the world. It's actually kind of tedious to read, but it's making a point. They said in Acts 2.11 that they are telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And in Acts 2.16, Peter affirms this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. This has finally been fulfilled, and many are saved. And at the end of the sermon, we get an important note for us to see. Peter encourages the crowd to receive Christ, but also to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way. Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So right there, Peter gives us the, the range of who will experience the gifts of the Spirit. Everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. Two more times in Acts, we see men filled with the Holy Spirit who then speak in tongues. People are filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again in the book of Acts. But there's two very significant times where that experience is marked by the gift of tongues. The first time is in Cornelius' house, the first Gentile to be saved in chapter 10, verse 46. Peter didn't even get to the altar call. 
He was preaching the gospel. They believed in their hearts. And before he even finished, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they began to speak with tongues and prophesy. And he turns to the other guys with him and says, well, I guess we better baptize them, right? And then he goes back to the, the crowd and a bunch of the Pharisees who had been saved. They're still Pharisees. God's still working on them. They say, we heard that you ate with a Gentile and then you baptized that same Gentile. He goes, but guys, remember what happened in, in Acts chapter 2? It happened with them. So what am I going to do? Not baptize them? And then we see it again in chapter 19, verse 6, where Paul comes across some disciples of John the Baptist who had not been fully instructed in the things of God. And the question he asks them is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Like, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. He goes, well, if you know John, then you've got to know about Jesus. And if you know about Jesus, you've got to know about the Holy Spirit. And he laid hands on them, and they were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues. I'm going to make an important note here. Not every time in the book of Acts, when people were filled with the Spirit, did they speak in tongues. The most prominent example of this is in Acts chapter 8, when Philip goes to the Samaritans, and there's a big revival, and then Peter goes up there, I believe, with John, and they're going to lay hands on them to receive the Spirit, because that was an important thing. Like, okay, they believe, but they don't have the Spirit's power yet, so let's go. And it says that the Spirit came upon them. It does not mention that they spoke in tongues. That's an important note that we'll come back to later. But what's clear throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit and his power and his indwelling was an essential part of salvation. That's how they wrapped up their altar calls was come be saved, be baptized and receive the Spirit. We also note that in the book of Acts, very frequently, not every time, but many times, those who were filled with the Spirit spoke in other tongues. So it was hinted at in the Old Testament. It was prophesied by Jesus. And then we see it experienced in the book of Acts. Now, what about the New Testament epistles? Well, the New Testament epistles don't say very much about the gift of tongues as a whole. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, there is a ton of detail about the gifts of the Spirit. And the one that Paul uses as his example is the gift of tongues and also prophecy. So you might want to turn there because it's worth reading large sections of this passage. We know about the Corinthian church in chapter 1, verse 7, it says that Paul commended them because they came short in no gift. Paul liked to do that. He would start out with the good things. And what's good that I can commend you for? He says, I commend you. You come short in no spiritual gift. There is no shortage of charismatic power, you might say, in the church of Corinth. But what they lacked, and this was a thread throughout the whole book, was love. And so Paul wrote to correct them. And in chapter 12, he begins by using the analogy of a body to describe the spiritual gifts. We're familiar with this language. We call it the body of Christ. But that image comes from his discussion of the spiritual gifts. And the word for spiritual gift is charisma. You can hear that English word right in there. It's a transliteration of the Greek word. So when you hear of charismatic Christianity, that is Christianity that has a particular emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit. And that is such a broad term that I sometimes hesitate to use it, but there it is. It comes from the Greek word charis, which means grace. So grace and gift, you can hear how those two things go together, right? Someone is going to grace you with their presence or grace you with a gift. These are the grace gifts of the Lord, that they help the body function. And that as we use our charismata, as we use our spiritual gifts, the body is built up. And Paul makes the point, we can't neglect any of these. You need all of them. You can't say, I don't need my liver, I don't need my left foot, because your body would not be a whole body without it. And there's a whole cool lesson I could get into here that by connecting them to the grace of God and how often Paul talks about the grace that has been given to him, you become an active channel of God's grace in someone else's life when you are exercising your spiritual gift. Isn't that awesome? So we want to talk sometimes about sacramental theology and is there a special grace in communion or in baptism? What I can say for sure, there is a special grace as the church works to edify one another because that is what God uses to build up the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we get a definition of a spiritual gift. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He gives a long list of them, and in verse 10, he includes to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And that list ranges from encouragement and administration to healing and miracles, and tongues is, is somewhere in the middle there. Now, this word for tongue is not that complicated. Sometimes you look at the Greek and it's interesting. Sometimes it just means what it says in English, and that's the case here. The word is glossa. 
It's where we get words like glossary from. You maybe have heard something referred to as a gloss in language when something's being written down. And it just means tongue, like the thing that you have in your mouth, the tongue. And like in English, where we refer to other tongues, right, this is my native tongue, it's used euphemistically to refer to languages. So that is the usage that is used in the New Testament. It's a word that Jesus used in Mark chapter 16. It's a word that's used every time in the book of Acts. And of course, here in 1 Corinthians, it's the same thing. All of these experiences are referring to the same thing. I think it is kind of odd that people try to split hairs between them because they're used the same language and it's described the same way. So I'm going to, to leave that, but I'd be happy to talk about it with you later if you have some questions about that. But the whole point of chapter 12 is that all gifts are necessary. Every gift is different and no one has them all. He gives this big long list of rhetorical questions. In chapter 12, verse 30, he says, do all possess gifts of healing? And the answer we look for is no. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. That's also very important because we see right there in the scripture that not everybody is going to speak in tongues. The church here seems to have been elevating the gift of tongues above the other gifts. That you were part of a special class of Christian, if you could do this. And you got pride of place in the meeting. And if the preacher was preaching and you felt like speaking in tongues, then he can just sit down and get out of your way. So Paul, in the middle of this, after chapter 12, gets into chapter 13. And we know what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about, right? It's about love. That's where we get that beautiful passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. And so with all that understood, we get into chapter 14. Chapter 12 had the theology, chapter 13 had the right attitude, and chapter 14 gives practical application. And this is where I want to read some of these passages at length. I won't do the whole thing because it would take us all day. But this is such a neglected chapter in Scripture, it's important for us to read it. Because sometimes you read these verses and you go, I had no idea that was in there. That makes so much more sense than what I've heard. So let's start. We'll read the first five verses to begin. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. I want to underline that one. It's important. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Uh, that could keep us busy right there, isn't it? We see a couple things. Number one, tongues are directed towards God. This is exactly what we saw in Acts chapter 2. What did they hear? Them declaring the wonderful works of God. And then we can assume when Peter was preaching, Peter was not preaching in tongues in that chapter. And I think that is easy to, to draw the conclusion, especially because the didactic passages, meaning the teaching passages, are supposed to interpret the narrative passages. So he said, well, it's hard to say from Acts if Peter was preaching in tongues or not. But 1 Corinthians tells us that when you speak in a tongue, you're not speaking to men, but to God. So sometimes folks will say, well, the gift of tongues is when you're in a, in a country where you don't speak the language and God wants you to speak their language to preach them the gospel. That would be a really cool thing, and I hope that happens to me. But that is not what the New Testament describes as the gift of tongues. I, I think that probably be classified as what you call a miracle, like the gift of miracles. Paul just kind of has a catch-all category of the gift of miracles, you know. We also see from these verses that tongues are a good thing. Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. More so that you prophesied, but tongues is great too. And also, they are not edifying in the church apart from interpretation. So he places a, an emphasis on that. Some people want to read only half of that last verse and say, Now, yeah, see, prophecy is better than tongues, so forget tongues. No, he says, unless someone interprets, then it's edifying. Let's skip down to verse 12 here. And we'll read down to verse 19. So you yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So don't just seek the experience. You want to build up the church with this. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, meaning in tongues, 
How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So another passage that could keep us busy. He encourages the interpretation of tongues in public gatherings to all. He says, interpret it so that people can hear what is being said and understand what is being said. And also, he's still affirming the benefit of this gift. He, he says, I'm, I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul was a charismatic Christian, you could say. But he's also affirming the benefit of this gift privately. Right? He says, when you, when you speak, you're edifying yourself and, and also publicly. Have it be interpreted so that everybody can say amen. It's like, it's cool that you're speaking in tongues, but how can I say amen to what you're saying if I don't hear what you're saying? You know? Let's skip down to verse 27. We'll just read two quick ones here. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. This is the most practical, it's about as practical as New Testament instruction gets. When you're having a meeting and folks are going to speak in tongues, he says, two, at the most three. Let there be an interpretation, one at a time, and if not, then it may be done privately. He says, if there's nobody there with the gift of interpretation, then just leave off for that service. He says, you can speak to yourself and to God, which, you know, sometimes you're in a prayer meeting, you're in a service, and you're speaking privately to the Lord and not saying it out loud for everybody to hear. Paul says, speak in tongues that way. Just, this is all about building up the body of Christ. And then down to verse 39 and 40, here's how he concludes his chapter. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Strong exhortation to seek the gifts like he started, huh? He begins, he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's a commandment in your Bible. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But there's also an injunction for decency and order in the church. This is a remarkable chapter. I exhort you to go home and read the whole thing. There's a lot of other notes, but those are the main points that I wanted us to grasp and, and make sure we still had time for the rest of it here. We have more detail on the doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit, and specifically the gift of tongues, than we do on a lot of other doctrines in the New Testament. We don't have a chapter like this on baptism. We don't have a chapter like this on the Trinity. And I believe in both of those things with all my heart. But it is important for us to note that this is not a minor issue in Scripture. Much attention is given to it. And we see that this gift is to be continued in the churches and not to be forbidden. And I believe that there is one final reference to this gift in the New Testament. It's an oblique one. It's a broad reference, but I think it's a catch-all that includes the gift of the Spirit. And it's, important. it's an important word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21. We read these verses not long ago. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. I think that instruction can apply to every spiritual gift, especially the gift of tongues. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in the church. Do not despise prophecies. That pairs right along with what he said. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. That is more or less the biblical data in your Bible. I hope some of that was new to you. I hope it was a good refresher for those of you who knew it. And I hope it's got the wheels turning in your head a little bit. Let's draw some general conclusions from this here. I've got seven, not because it's a magic number, but that's how many I came up with. But I always feel obliged to say that when it ends up being seven. But, but here's some conclusions that we can draw from this. Number one, the gift of tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is part of the greater gift of the Holy Spirit's presence and indwelling power that Jesus promised. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and it's fulfilled now. Number two, the gift of tongues is a sign of the filling of the Spirit. And I think you can say if, if Acts is our model, and it is, it is a common sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit, but not always. Number three, the gift of tongues, well, what is it? It's speaking to God in an unknown language. That's a definition of the gift of tongues. And there's a whole side conversation to be had here. Maybe you can talk about it at the home fellowships this week about now is this just 
earthly languages? Can there be heavenly languages? What about languages of angels? There is a little reference in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. That kind of makes you sit up and pay attention. It's like, is he exaggerating or is that like a thing that happens, you know? I I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that in the book of Acts, they were recognizable languages. And I also think we want to be careful before we start saying, well, that doesn't sound like a real language. Because there are lots of real languages that don't sound like real languages. (laughs) Number four, the gift of tongues is to be used alongside the gift of interpretation in the public gathering. Those who have the gift of interpretation often have the gift of tongues as well, but not always. I know a great godly lady who could not speak in tongues, but she had the gift of interpretation. It was awesome. Number five, the gift of tongues is beneficial in private and in public if it's interpreted. Private all the time, Paul seems to say, public with an interpretation. Number six, the gift of tongues is not allowed to run the show in the church. This is what was happening in Corinth, and it can be tempting to allow it to happen today because it's so exciting and it's so faith-building, but we're not allowed to do that. And number seven, the gift of tongues is not to be forbidden. And there's much more to say, and I'm going to continue to say some more things here, but that's enough to hold us for now, those seven things. And I hope that we can see that most of that is relatively uncontroversial. It's not that scary. Okay, well, that's what the Bible says. I can get down with that. I remember there was a friend of mine who was at Liberty University. I think very highly of Liberty University, but they largely hold to a cessationist position in, in their pneumatology. And in the theology class his friend was in, the guy ran through all these things, says, you know, two or three at the most, one at a time with interpretation. He ran through the list and he turns around and says, now, those of you who say you believe in the gift of tongues, how many of you have ever been to a church that actually did these things? My friend rather humbly put his hand up because that was what went on at our church. And the professor had a marker up and he said, he looked at him for a minute and goes, okay. Open up to chapter, you know, whatever they were in. Apparently he had a big long speech prepared where he was going to say, this never happens and it's all fake and it's not real. But it's like, this is what the Bible says. Why don't we just do that? They're not that radical, although it is a radical thing we're talking about. And I think already, as you look at this, our cultural assumptions are being challenged here. Some of us are being pulled a little bit. They know, but I, I, want, I wanted to do more, you know, and some of us are being pushed a little bit. I don't like this. This isn't very comfortable for me, but it's right there in the scripture. So the next thing I want to look at here, now that we have the biblical data here, let's look at the various errors in the church surrounding the gift of tongues, the various excesses, but also the, the various quenching of the Holy Spirit that goes on. And we're going to begin, first of all, with the excess surrounding this gift, Paul said at the end of chapter 14 that all things should be done decently and in order. These are the folks that have got that all things part down pat. Everything happens in these churches, but there's a lack of decency and order. This is characterized by an obsession with the gift of tongues. And there's a reason for that. There's a connected lack of order that comes along with it, and they all spring from the same thing. This is the fatal error of folks that fall into this. And I'm going to be very careful to say, not everybody who believes in the gift of tongues believes these things, nor is everybody who is excessive in their practice of the gift of tongues believing this point. But this is a very important thing that I've got to draw out. There are people who believe that speaking in tongues is necessary for salvation. And if you don't speak in tongues, you are not saved. Now that is, I believe, rightly to be called heresy. Because we are saved by grace through faith alone. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we all know that. We've got to remind ourselves of that. But here's how it works. It's a logical conclusion. You say, well, to be saved, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. Romans 8, 9. We already referred to that. Here's where it goes wrong. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you must speak in tongues. Therefore, you must speak in tongues to be saved. This is not biblically true as we've already seen today. We looked at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30. Paul said, do all speak in tongues? With the answer being, no. And he says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. So they say, ah, see right there. Paul says we all need to speak. But the implication there is that they weren't. Not everybody was speaking in tongues. And those who did were putting themselves above other people, which is unfortunately what still happens today. 
There are folks that feel like they're substandard Christians because they don't speak in tongues. And it's a really great way to drive people away, if not from the Lord, then certainly from the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, as we saw in the book of Acts, tongues were not mentioned every time folks got saved. The example of Lydia in Philippi. She believed, they were baptized, and that's all that we have. How do we know if somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit then? Well, we have Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. There are lots of folks that speak in tongues, but they have no self-control and they have no kindness, no gentleness. And here's another passage. I want to read this one. Everybody knows the fruit of the Spirit. This is another cool one, though. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. These are some ways of how we know somebody is filled with the Spirit of God. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, we get three really cool signs of the Holy Spirit in those verses. Number one is worship music. Amen. What's a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The, the biggest book in the Bible was the song book that the Holy Spirit inspired. And this is also, by the way, why I believe that the more charismatic, the more open to the spiritual gifts movements in the church, write the best songs. Because I think there's a biblical connection between those things. So that's pretty cool. Number two, giving thanks always and for everything. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, there will be gratitude flowing out of you, joy of the Lord. That's the same fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And number three, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're not pushing people around. You're not dominating other people. You're willing to defer to one another. You're willing to function like a body ought to function. So we can dispense with this idea that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. And it also solves many problems. We're not obligated to make up the gift of tongues. And this happens. Some of y'all have experienced this before. Because you've been told, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. You get scared, so you start trying really, really hard. And eventually you resort to making stuff up. Or you get shamed if you don't have it. Even if you're, well, you're not, you know, it's not that you won't be saved, but I mean, you're really missing out on something, you know. So you, you try to make things up. My grandfather, who, if you know my grandfather, he was a paratrooper. He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and he, he's that kind of guy. So he, he was reading his Bible, and he started seeing some of these things about healing and the gift of tongues and the Holy Spirit. And his church said nothing about that. So he said, well, I'm going to go find a church that believes these things and, and see what they have to say about it. And he went, and he, he tells a story of this, this little old lady who said, well, you've got to speak in tongues. Said, okay, how do I do that? And she said, well, let's just begin to pray. And you speak, and nothing was really happening for him. And he said, this lady started hitting him in the chest and grabbed his chin and tried to, now just start making noises. And was moving it. And, and I, my paratrooper grandfather was like, forget it. <laughs> he says, says, I don't know what this is, but this is not what the Bible's talking about. Which, I mean, look at the scripture. Does that have any resemblance to anything that Jesus did ever? He, and now, to my grandfather's credit, he says, now I know this is what the Bible says. I know that they were wrong, not that the Bible was somehow mistaken. So that, that's an important thing. And also these churches, if you believe that the gift of tongues is either essential for salvation or like the primo mark of a good Christian, you're not going to put a lid on that. You're going to let it roll. You're going to let it go. And that can lead to a lack of order, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.40. Very often, the gift of tongues is an excuse for a lack of self-control. Or it's an excuse for showmanship. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to speak in tongues so loud, everybody's going to look at me and think, wow. It's faux spiritual. There's videos I've seen of, of pastors that instead of saying, um, they'll babble a few words in tongues. Like, you know, like everything is spiritual. I can't just say, um, and take my time, you know. And it's remarkable to me. That the Bible's instruction on these matters, and there's a ton of it. You just saw it. There's, there's chapters of how to do this. And it's so clearly neglected. Two or three, one at a time, with an interpretation. More than that, 1 Corinthians 14.2 says, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So very often, the interpretation that comes is a prophetic interpretation. Somebody speaks in tongues and they say, Thus says the Lord. And they give an instruction to the church. Now, we believe in prophecy, too, and there's a place for that. 
But when you are speaking in tongues, hear me on this, you are not channeling the Holy Spirit as if God is speaking to the people through you and he's going to grab hold of you and make you speak. That is simply not what the Bible says. He is empowering you to speak to the Lord. Isn't that glorious enough without us adding stuff to it, you know? And very often what I've found in, in, in practice is that somebody has something that God has placed on their heart, an encouragement or an exhortation, and somebody speaks in tongues and they go, I know, I know, I know, and they say the thing that God had given them, but it was not directly connected to those things. And it's tough doing instruction in meetings like that because you can really embarrass people, but you've got to do it right, right? We've got to do it right. This is the error of excess, but I want to be charitable here. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, it is good to come short in no gift. That was a good thing. Paul didn't write the Corinthians and say, would y'all knock that off? He said, here's how you do it. I have a soft spot for those who love the gifts of the Spirit. And I have found too, and this is maybe a, a correction for some of us, that the criticisms that are aimed at churches that allow the gift of tongues have nothing to do with Scripture, but it's cultural. I don't like that loud music. That, those emotional prayers that they do, it's all, just, it's all so wound up and crazy. It's like, all right, well, is that Scripture or is that your preference? Because we, we don't criticize other churches for preferences. The Bible says it is before the Lord that a man stands or falls, and you have no right to judge another man's servant. There are worse things than being excited about the Holy Spirit. So let's not be dismissive, let's be corrective. Do you understand the difference? Dismissive says, fine, I don't want anything to do with that. Corrective says, I'm willing to go through the pain of trying to get this right. That said, though, of course, we strive to do all things biblically, and we're never going to hold in this church to a gifts-based legalism, which is what that amounts to. But this brings me to the second error, which, at least in the circles I've grown up in, is more acceptable, but I will say should not be so. This is the error of what's called cessationism. That comes from the word to cease, which means to stop. This is the belief that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. Usually, and suspiciously, the miraculous ones. Teaching is still fine. Encouragement is still fine. Administration is still fine. Mercy, but no healing, no tongues, no prophecy. Most of all tongues, though. There is no biblical basis for such a view. There is no place in Scripture where it tells us these gifts will stop after the time of the apostles. But I want to address these verses here because it's, an, it's a very common argument and I, it's not a good one. Textually, I mean. like This is not good Bible study. The cessationist does this. He leans into the inerrancy of Scripture, which I'm all for that. right? The Bible is the perfect, inerrant, inspired Word of God. And I say, Amen, Hallelujah. Therefore, he says, those miraculous gifts were used in the beginning to establish Scripture and we don't need them anymore. But there is no verse in Scripture that says that's what they were for. They say the preaching of the gospel, when there was no Bible, you needed miracles. But once the Bible came, well, we don't need miracles anymore. I want to make it very clear to you, the only passage that refers to the writing process of Scripture is in Peter when he says those men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The whole church was filled with the Holy Spirit. Many thousands of people spoke in tongues in Scripture. And only like five of them wrote anything down. And in fact, some of the ones that wrote them down, like Luke, like Jude, like James, were not of the 12 apostles. We don't even know who wrote Hebrews, to be sure. So the idea that these gifts are connected with writing Scripture is one that has been made later, not from the Bible. But this person is afraid that if we allow the gifts of the Spirit, allow tongues, we allow prophecy, that that could theoretically undermine the Bible. Now, I don't want anything to undermine the Bible, but we've got to look at what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 through 10. Paul said, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he says, Aha! See? Tongues will cease, prophecies will end, and knowledge also. Although for some reason, most folks are okay with knowledge. They just have a problem with prophecy and, and tongues for some reason. When the perfect comes, and they say, now what's more perfect than the inspired and errant word of God? Listen, I believe that the word of God is perfect, and it's able to make us righteous for salvation and all that. But that is wildly out of context. That passage has nothing to do with the Bible. 
The next verse says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So whenever tongues and prophecy pass away, we will see God face to face. Do you see God face to face now? Absolutely not. But someday you will. When? In heaven. So that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? You're not going to need to speak in tongues in heaven. You're going to need to prophesy in heaven. You're going to know God face to face. You're going to know even as you are known. But we take the idea of scripture and we import it into that passage to make it say what we'd like it to say. And 1 Corinthians 14, 39 says, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but the cessationist will forbid tongues and anything that sounds a little too out of the ordinary. And this also, because they've got this theology and they believe that they're defending scripture, it causes them to look with fear and with disdain on their charismatic brothers in the church. And you start to hear, there's always these urban legends that you hear. Now, I've never heard a person that actually had this happen, but, well, you know, I knew one person that was speaking in tongues, and then they went over to Africa, and the person said, why are they worshiping this false god that we worship here? That's what they're saying. You know, if you open yourself up to Jesus, anybody could come in. You never know. That's a good way to get possessed, my friend. And all that, that music is witchcraft music, and the way that they're doing that, it's, that, listen, Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 31, not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I'm not accusing everybody who believes this of this, but I, it would freak me out to say something like that. When you start attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan and to demons, Jesus is like, there's no forgiveness for that. And I'm not going to spend much more time on that. I'm just going to say, again, we should not be judging our brothers and sisters in Christ unless it's something that we can demonstrate clearly biblically. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, I want you to understand no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues and they started cursing God. The Bible says that's not possible. Well, that's what he said. Well, are you going to believe scripture or not? That's what it boils down to. I give a sharp warning to anybody who wants to discount another person's worship and spirituality. Because all this leads to a very intellectual, but a very sterile kind of Christianity. Apart from the Spirit. Where we're afraid of the life-giving power, the promise of the Father that the book of Acts talked about. And I am second to none in my regard for the Bible. And it is that very regard for the Bible that compels me to value the gift of tongues right along with everything else God is. And to to try and pit one against the other is foolishness. Well, do you want tongues or do you want the Bible? I love the Bible, which is why I believe in the gift of tongues. For some reason, it's considered unacceptable to run wild with the gift of tongues, yet it's somehow acceptable to discourage it and ignore it. Those are both unbiblical. And they're both wrong to do that. And I have no time (laughs) for what is called open but cautious. You know what open but cautious means? I've been in the seminary. I know how this goes. Open but cautious means I have no biblical reason to forbid the gifts of the Spirit, but I'm a little freaked out by it. So if God wants to do something, I'm not going to stop it, but we're not going to ask. We're not going to pray. We're not going to seek. Despite the fact that 1 Corinthians 14 says twice, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. But I want to, again, be charitable. Those who love the gift of tongues have done a lot to damage their own case in the minds of those who are nervous about it. Sometimes it's not even pride. It can be pride. Sometimes it's just, I'm afraid. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be rolling on the floor and swinging from the chandeliers and yelling in a language I don't know. Okay? But I have to say again, this is a, this is a cultural issue. I don't like that culture. But what, if, but what about what the scripture says, though? Don't you want everything that God has for you? I, I love that, that th- these folks who are my, this is kind of my people more or less where I come from. I'm, I'm trying my best to bring us to the center where I think we ought to be. But it's like, we need everything that Jesus has for us. And there's joy in the spirit and there's gratitude in the spirit and there's worship that comes and the gift of tongues is part of that. So we see both these errors. They're both cultural, they're not biblical, and they're both unacceptable. Greg Laurie put it this way. He says, if you have all word and no spirit, you'll dry up. If you have all spirit and no word, you'll blow up. (laughs) But if you have the spirit and the word working together, you'll grow up. And I like that. That's really good, isn't it? So that's the biblical data. We've examined the two errors. So where's the application here? I want to examine a couple ways of how this gift ought to be used. Number one, in private. 
or the individual believer. How should this gift be used? Because Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 14 a couple times. He said the one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. He said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. The implication, of course, there is privately. So this is often what is called a prayer language. This is not a biblical term. It's a decent enough term, in my opinion. If you don't like it, you don't have to use it, but it seems good enough to me. Speaking in tongues in private is a matter of your personal devotion, along with prayer, along with reading the scriptures, along with meditation and fasting. It's a way of allowing the Holy Spirit to give you the words to praise the Lord, to thank the Lord. And I've also found it's a way of allowing the Spirit to direct your prayers because the Holy Spirit knows what ought to be prayed for. So if you have the gift of tongues, and there's always a few lurkers in the church, I've found, who don't want anybody to know that they speak in tongues because they're afraid they're going to get booted out or something. But if you have this gift, you should use it as often as you like in your time with the Lord. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than any of you. You might not understand what is being said, but the Lord does. And I've found too, I have the gift of tongues. And you usually have a sense of what's being said. You, you, you have a, a, a connection in your spirit with what the Lord is doing, what he's communicating through you. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my mind also. So that's a, a great reminder. He says, I'm not always going to understand what I'm praying, so I'm going to pray in tongues, and I'm also going to pray in English or whatever your language is. He says, I'm going to sing in tongues. I'm going to sing in English too. Singing in tongues is, is something else. What, what, a, what a gift would that be? And I, I've experienced that personally and privately, but that, that's a pretty radical thing that Paul talks about. I love when the New Testament just kind of drops things in there, like you should know what he's talking about, and this moves on. Now, of course, there's no shame, and there's nothing lost for those who don't have the gift of tongues. I can't say that enough times. But for those of us who do, we should enjoy it to the fullest extent. This is, a, this is a way of connecting with the Lord. And it seems from 1 Corinthians 14 to me, private prayer in tongues is the primary use of this gift. And some folks want to sound real spiritual and say, well, you shouldn't be using a gift. It's only going to edify you. Why not? Is <laughs> what I would say. I study to teach the word of God. I get edified more than all of you when I'm studying this, this thing. When you lead worship, when you serve somebody, you ever say something like, you know, I've been setting up these chairs and cleaning this building and I'm serving those people, but I'm more blessed than they are. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Paul says it right there in 1 Corinthians 14. Be edified between you and the Lord. That's the private use. Secondly, let's look at how this gift should be used publicly in the church. And I really don't have a whole lot to add to what we've already seen in chapter 14, which is number one, the gift should be allowed. Number two, two or three times. Number three, one at a time. And number four, with an interpretation. That's what the Bible says. And for some of us, it kind of cramps our style to read that. But that's what the Bible, and for some of us, that's about as much as we can handle. The Lord knew what he was talking about. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, one of my favorite verses. And this is what we try to use as the template for our prayer meetings. He said, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. He says, when you come together in a, in a prayer meeting, an afterglow, sometimes it's called an encounter service, we used to call them back in Lynchburg. Everybody has the gift of the Spirit to share in those moments, and they should all be allowed for the building up of the church. So every church ought to make space for this. Usually in a prayer meeting or small groups, home fellowships would be a great place for this. When we had the team that came down from Virginia and we were going out every day and sharing the gospel door to door, went to over 1,500 doors telling people about Jesus. We sit down around the campfire one night, crammed into my living room one night, and we began to pray and we just said, let's, let's open it up and let's see what the Spirit has to say to and through his church here. We've seen the gift of tongues in use in our prayer meetings. I hope that we see more of it in the future. I hope that it stops being a point of trepidation for us. I hope that we can be a way of instructing other churches that this is what the Bible says and this is how it ought to be done. Because I've seen it be such a, a, an uplift for people. I also think, and I'm going to say this part cautiously, if you don't agree with this part, feel free to toss it, but I think that there is room for other uses of the gift of tongues that are not explicitly in the context Paul's talking about, but that still do not violate his instructions. 
For example, he said in chapter 14, verse 28, that if there's no interpretation, speak to yourself and to God. I think that praying, as I said, kind of quietly to yourself in tongues is perfectly acceptable and appropriate in the church, as long as you're not being distracting with it. You know, when we're, we're worshiping and in between the verses or whatever, and we say, oh, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. You know, if you were to do something like that in, in tongues, that would be cool, as long as you're not hollering so that everybody turns and looks at you. Because you shouldn't do that anyway, by the way. But certainly not with, with something that is so controversial. We don't want to make it difficult for people. I also think that in my experience, so this is my experience, not scripture, weigh it, be a Berean, this has been, for me, helpful in prayer for the sick. I've, I've laid hands on several people who have been healed from various sicknesses, and in many cases, it seems that when I've prayed in tongues has been when the Lord has, has done what he was going to do. I think it's a great way of praying when you don't know what to pray for. This is my experience. I'm not going to die on that hill, so if you don't like any of that, go ahead. But I think the primary use I've seen of this in the church meetings is it's almost like a compass. Because when you're speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit, as it says in Acts, is giving you utterance. And so when you speak in tongues, for example, and the interpretation is something along the lines of thanking God for his kindness and praising the Lord for how good and how nice and how kind he is to us, somebody there in the church who is, is afraid of God and has grown up in a church maybe where they batter the sheep, you know what I mean? They hear that and it's encouraging for them. And we hear that and we go, well, let's pray about that. Let's, let's praise the Lord for his goodness. What are some great scriptures that talk about God's faithfulness and kindness to us? And maybe somebody has an encouragement that goes right along with it or a testimony to share. And so in that way, it can serve almost like a compass. Amen. I would add to this also, another practical lesson. It is the gift of interpretation, not the gift of translation. You say, what's the difference? Well, it's only a semantic one that I'm making right now. For example, you'll have two people who have the gift of interpretation. Somebody speaks in tongues. You're like, all right, I have the interpretation. I know what this is. Somebody else says something, and it's not quite what you were going to say. But if you back up, most of the time I found it was, though. Those weren't exactly the words maybe that I would have used, but it's the same gist. It's the same lesson. It's the same application. And I think that that is just the way the Lord uses different people. Very often when I exercise the gift of interpretation, there's an image in my mind that the Lord uses. And the best I can do is to communicate that to people. I think that we ought to learn these things and have some familiarity with them that builds on what Scripture says. Not going beyond it, but just having some personal understanding of these things. And obviously we should avoid showy uses of any gift. Not just tongues, but encouragement, even administration, even preaching, especially preaching, right? You can stand up and you can, you can be a real showy, really obnoxious preacher, and you're like, man, this guy is so out of control. We should never have preaching in the church again. No, it's let's go and do it right. And it's the same thing for the gift of tongues. As 1 Corinthians 14, 23 says, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? He says, if y'all come together and everybody's hollering and speaking in tongues at the same time, someone's going to walk in and go, what is happening in here? And some of y'all have testimonies of exactly that. But properly utilized, the gift of tongues is a huge faith builder. It's a reminder that God is still working and he's not done. And then that Bible in your lap is true. And if that's true, then isn't all the rest of it true too? Third point of application coming to the end here. Let's ask this question. How do you receive the gift of tongues? Well, like all spiritual gifts, there is no specific way laid down in Scripture. There is no incantation. There is no magic formula. Because our God is a person. Our God is actually persons. And all we ought to do is ask. I don't think God likes it when we treat him like a vending machine. Amen. You know, or, or a computer program. You've got to put in the right input and you get the right output. No, God's a person. Ask. Luke eleven thirteen. 13, Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Amen. You're not given any more instruction than that other than to ask. Because 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, The Holy Spirit gives to each one as He wills. It's a matter of personal decision by God Himself. It's not up to you. But this does not mean that you should not pray specifically or persistently. I have found that God's most special gifts of every kind come only after a long period of seeking. 
I prayed for years to speak in tongues because I wanted to so bad. I thought if I can just speak in tongues, I'll never doubt the Lord again. And I quickly learned that the enemy is much more crafty than I thought. But I, I knew that this is something that I wanted. I knew that it was a good thing to desire. And I never felt the Lord or any godly people in my life tell me that I was somehow in the wrong for doing this. Very often, a gift burns in your heart because God wants to give it to you. You hear about the gift of healing, and you go, oh, that's, that would be amazing, but I wouldn't dare ask for something like that. God's like, maybe the reason I got you so excited about it is because I want to give that to you. I tell this to people that want to be pastors all the time. They say, I'd love to be a preacher, so I must not be called. Because everybody I know who's called to ministry didn't want to do it. It's like, well, maybe God made you excited about being a preacher because he wants you to be a preacher. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, I wish you all prophesied, but also I wish you all spoke with tongues. You're not asking for a wrong thing by asking for the gift of tongues. And in these matters, it's also appropriate to ask other people to pray for you. This is called the laying on of hands. We see it in 2 Timothy 1.6. Paul said that the gift was given to you when we laid hands on you. We see it in Acts chapter 8, verse 18. Peter and John came to Samaria, laid hands on the people, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not magic. That's just God's people praying together. And especially with speaking in tongues, somebody who is praying for you who already has that gift often has a lot of wisdom to share with you. And in that vein... As I said, as somebody who does speak in tongues, I have some, some wisdom that I'd like to share with you now. These are the most common questions and the most common pieces of advice I give to folks who either desire or have the gift of tongues. And I'm going to run through these quickly. And this has been my experience, and I think all of these can be backed up biblically. Number one, you have to speak to speak in tongues. Do not wait for the Holy Ghost to grab you by the throat and shake you around. That is not going to happen. We're not waiting for a trance, although there are trances in the Bible. I'm not going to touch that today. <laughs> if you want to speak in tongues, you should speak. You need to open your mouth. A lot of times people, they, they pray for the gifts of tongues, but they're too scared to even pray in English. It, you have to speak, all right? Number two, you will be able to control yourself. The fruit of the Spirit is, the last one, self-control. 1 Corinthians 14, 32, Paul said concerning prophecy that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So he says, when you prophesy... Don't tell me that you couldn't help yourself. Because he was talking about people that were leaping up during the service, during the teaching. He says, yeah, you can control yourself. So same thing here. You will be able to control yourself. Number three, you may or may not be emotional when you speak in tongues. Some people I've seen, they break down weeping and they, they get all tingly and it's wonderful. That has not been my experience. I almost always do not feel emotional when I speak in tongues. So don't look for that is the point. Don't be afraid of it, but don't look for that. And certainly don't try to work something up, you know. Number four, you should practice it in private. And everybody gets weird when I say this one. Go home and speak in tongues in your private devotions so that when you come to church, you are comfortable and ready to use it for the corporate edification. So why well, doesn't seem right to me? Listen, you want the folks in your church that have the gift of teaching to practice. You want the folks that have the gift of exhortation to practice. It's the same thing for the gift of tongues. Number five, don't keep it a secret. Just about every person I've ever known who's ever spoken in tongues says this exact phrase to me. Well, God has told me that this is something to be between me and him and not to share in the church. If you've heard that, you are not alone. So has every other person. And I'll give you the instruction that was given to me. The Bible says that this is to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. Amen. So don't be embarrassed. The Lord gave all the gifts for the church's edification. Number six, you should expect the doubts to come. Every person I know who's ever spoken in tongues has said, was that real? Was that real? Did that really happen? Yes, it did. And that, that's one of the most exciting parts of my ministry is to get to tell people, oh, no, that's absolutely right. Everything you just said is exactly what I've experienced, what they've experienced, and, and it's a good thing. It's great to give that relief to people. And number seven, don't ever let it be a point of pride for you. Amen. So how often do you speak in tongues? <laughs> it's ridiculous. We don't do that for anything in the church, right? Nothing, least of all this. So those are some common pieces of advice that I give. I'd be happy to share others with you. And we say, well, I don't know if we should be giving this kind of advice. Preachers give wisdom to each other all the time. We'll say things like, now, this isn't scripture, but after 40 years of ministry, here's what I've learned, right? Administrators share wisdom with each other all the time. Have you read that book? It's great. It's not scripture, but it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Same thing for this. It's no different. As somebody who's spoken in tongues for more than 10 years now, I've learned a few things, and that's what I'm passing on to you. 
Ultimately, if you want to speak in tongues, it's up to the Lord. So you should focus on being filled with the Spirit first and then see what comes from there. Well, that's been a lot of information. I understand that. But I hope you see how important it is to grasp all this. This is how we do theology in the church. We don't do things and then go to the Bible and see if it fits what we like to do. You find out what the Bible says and you do your best to do that. And we have learned that the gift of tongues is a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the new covenant. It's not necessary, but it's wonderful. And it's never to be quenched or forbidden. And I recognize there might be some hesitation in this room. I can see it in your eyes. But let me just encourage you to be a Berean. Go home and check the scriptures. Don't be a Pharisee who you're just going to insist on your tradition and your culture. Go look at what the word has to say. Because James 1 verse 7 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You should not be afraid of the gift of tongues or anything else that God has for you. Because God only gives good gifts, doesn't he? And we say, well, the Holy Spirit kind of freaks me out. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So if you love Jesus, you'll love the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, but the Holy Spirit is God in us. How amazing is that? And also, to get stern again, you have no right to reject any of God's gifts, as if you didn't need them. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 says, So the hand say to the foot, I don't need you. Or the eye say to the stomach, I don't need you either. This is a common one here. Well, listen, you might be right, but listen, we don't need this, so let's just not worry about it. You don't have the right to say that. We ought not to let our culture, from either side, whether Pentecostal culture, cessationist culture, determine your theology. Theology informs your culture to the point of stretching us, even if it's necessary. And remember, here's how we'll wrap this up. The gift of tongues is a sign to the world that judgment has come. But also, redemption in Christ Jesus. What God did at the Tower of Babel by dispersing all the nations, he has reversed at Calvary, as it says in Ephesians, breaking down every barrier of separation in Christ, bringing us together under the blood. And the great sign of that truth the Bible gives us is the gift of tongues.